God, we thank you so much that you are here with us. God, that this um, exercise of uh, preaching and listening is not done outside of your presence. And so, God, we pray that you would help us mightily in this moment to take your word. God, we know it's alive and it's active, but we pray that you would press it into our hearts. God, I pray that you would comfort those who need comfort this morning and that you would uh, convict those who need conviction. And in all of this, God, we want Jesus to be glorified and to be lifted up. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are in our uh, third uh, week in this sermon series called God With Us, looking at Advent. And the first week, we looked at the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And then last week, Rob Loy preached for us, and we looked at uh, the topic of wonder and how uh, we can kind of fall into uh, a rut as it relates to the birth of Jesus. We get so busy and somewhat so stressed out that we can kind of crowd out the awe within our own uh, hearts. But today's focus will be on the threat, beyond the threat. Now, when you think about the Christmas story, you don't normally associate it with the word threat. And I think by first glance, when you look at Matthew chapter 2, you might be tempted to think that the only threat that occurs in this story happens between Herod and Jesus, that Herod is trying to kill Jesus. And so uh, he kind of, he kills and slaughters actually all of the children under the age of two in Bethlehem. And yet that's not uh, what I mean when I say uh, the word threat. In fact, the way that we're going to approach this text is we're going to look at the way that Jesus became a threat to the existence of sin, both in the world and in our lives. In fact, the reason why Jesus came was to forgive us of our sins. And so if your sin, uh, you view Jesus as a threat to your existence. And so I want to look at that idea through the different characters within Matthew chapter 2. And the reason why we're going to look at this topic today is because we have a tendency during the Christmas season to focus all of our attention on the hope and the joy and the peace that Jesus brings. And we should, and that's, and that's fine to do so. But I would argue that we won't be able to understand the full meaning of Christmas unless we understand our sin issue and what Jesus came and how Jesus came to take away our sin. John Piper says that Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight that it will not have its intended effect until we feel desperately the need for a savior. And I think that is so right on, that Christmas can become kind of this cute time, but we don't feel like our need for Jesus and our savior because we skip over looking at our personal sin. And so we're gonna look at that in Matthew uh, chapter two. Well, I have two daughters, and uh, the oldest today is her fourth birthday. It's kind of crazy that she's four already, and, uh, and so I've got a second one who's 11 months old, and so we've made that transition from having one to two. Now, if you've ever done that before, you know exactly what that means, and uh, you know that it's not easy, and it's somewhat of a difficult uh, transition, and we were warned of it. We said, you know what, expect the oldest to have some regressions related to sleep and obedience and eating and potty and all that uh, kind of thing. And we said, okay, yeah, I guess we'll anticipate that. But the first couple months were, uh, were, were quite difficult, just trying to adjust um, having two, and specifically even for, for Ellie at times. 
In fact, uh, one example of that is that we used to have a dog uh, named Charlie, and I'll emphasize we used to, because what would happen is that Ellie discovered that when Lindsay was feeding Lila, uh, mommy wasn't going to move for several minutes. And so Ellie would take our dog Charlie up into her room and, and close the door. And something happened in that room every time that either cost us a lot of money or created a large mess. And so the best decision that the Beals family made in 2017 was actually giving our dog Charlie to a family friend who really wanted a dog and trust me, he's being taken care of. And just to simplify our lives and to remove a, a temptation from, uh, from Ellie's life. And uh, even though it's her birthday today, if you see Ellie, um, maybe not talk about dogs or pets right now. Like it happened a couple months ago, but it's probably still a little bit, a little bit of a fresh wound for her. So she, uh, she thinks she's got leverage between me and Lindsay right now to get a cat. And uh, so she's trying to negotiate, but uh, she doesn't know that you can't be a Christian and have a cat. So um, <laughs> clearly a dog person. But anyways, so what, what was going on with, with Ellie uh, in those regressions there? I mean, she's trying to adjust being the big sister and, and she starts to act out. Well, what we were told uh, by our pediatrician, what we witnessed is that Ellie was perceiving little Lila to be a threat in her life. Like she was viewing this, this cute little baby uh, to, to be a threat to everything that she built as a three-year-old and as an only child. And so now Ellie has to share her toys. She has to share her attention. She has to share one-on-one uh, -on -one time with mom and dad. And Lila was a threat to her little kingdom. And just from that little example, I just want to um, drive home the point that whenever you experience a threat, there's always a response. Like there's always some type of, of reaction whenever you feel uh, threatened by something. And the same is true even within sin. Like when sin feels threatened because of the existence of Jesus, it will always cause us to respond in a certain way. That's exactly what I want to look at in Matthew chapter 2. We're going, to, we're going to walk through the main characters of this text, and I'm going to do two things with each character. I'm going to highlight the threat that Jesus posed in their life, and then I'm going to look at the response or the reaction because of that. Okay. Now, before we dive in, just a reminder, since we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth and the surrounding events is quite unique. It's different than than Luke's accounts. In fact, part of that reason is because Matthew, even though he's predominantly writing to a Jewish audience, is really concerned that his readers understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he's the promised King of the Jews, but he's come to die for the sins of the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. And so in chapter two, Matthew tells us of the visit of the wise men from the east, of Mary and Joseph with Jesus fleeing to Egypt, and of course, of Herod slaughtering the children in Bethlehem. But I want you to notice, I want you to pick up on this theme in this chapter is that Matthew is particularly interested in highlighting the sovereignty of God in the midst of human opposition. That Matthew is trying to focus in on the fact that, that God is particularly concerned about protecting Jesus in order to carry forth his plan of redemption. So knowing a little bit of the context, let's 
dive into our first character here. First character is Herod. Now, we are introduced to Herod in verse 1, where Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, what do we know about Herod the king? Well, Herod was one of the worst tyrant kings Israel ever had. And it's interesting because he wasn't even Jewish. Like he was basically just a Roman puppet that Rome made him king of Judea in 40 BC. And if you know anything about Herod, you know that he was known for really three things. The first thing that he was known for was his efficiency in extracting taxes from the people. He's really good at that. Number two, he was known for his great architecture. He built amazing buildings, palaces, and temples. But number three, and something that will impact our time together knowing Herod, is that he was popular for being paranoid about losing power. This man was terribly insecure. In fact, he had his first wife killed because he thought that she was conspiring against him. He thought, he couldn't confirm it, but he just had a hunch. And for just, just for good measure, he had her mother and brother killed as well. A few years later, he had all three sons of his killed uh, for the exact same reason. And then when he was inaugurated as king, he invited all of his family's enemies to a festival. And it was supposed to be a festival for peace, and yet he ambushed them and had them all ki- killed as well. And so Herod was a bad man. Like this, this guy was a tyrant and he was paranoid about losing power. Now again, his main problem here was fear. He was very insecure. And the reason for that is because yes, he wasn't Jewish, but he never really felt like the position he had was something that he earned. In fact, his father had done some favors to Rome. And so as payment back to him, Rome made the Herod family uh, the right to rule over Judea, even though it was under Roman occupation. Rome, in fact, gave Herod an army, and so he was able to extend his empire from Judea all the way to Lebanon. So as a result, Herod actually called himself king of the Jews. Okay, so this is what his title was all the way up until his death. Now, that's important because when you get to Matthew chapter 2 and you have Jesus who is born, you can see that the threat that Jesus posed upon Herod was a threat upon his power. That Herod, even though he, he pretends to want to worship Jesus in front of the wise men, Herod was actually fearful of this baby who was born king of the Jews. That he's approached by these wise men. And these wise men come to him saying, look, we're, we're here to worship the king of the Jews, a.k.a. the real king of the Jews. Where is he? And so if you look at Herod, who is deeply insecure, he's paranoid about losing power, and you've got these wise men coming into Jerusalem saying, where's the real king of the Jews? You can see why he was threatened by the existence of Jesus, specifically with his power, control, and his own little kingdom that Herod didn't want any competition for his throne. Now, verse three tells us that Herod was troubled. And that word there could mean agitated or stirred up or shaken up. It, it conveys the idea of, of panic, that his supremacy was in jeopardy, 
And so it's no wonder this man who was a tyrant, who was paranoid about losing his power, does exactly what he did. He was threatened by Jesus. In fact, it says that all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. And they were troubled not because of the birth of Jesus, but they were troubled because they know exactly what Herod does when he's agitated and when he's stirred up. He kills people. So Herod finds out about the prophecy that you can read in verse 6. That's from Micah chapter 5. And his paranoia is at an all-time high. He freaks out. And so he summons the wise men and deceives them and says to them, look, if you find out where this king of the Jews is born, let me know so I can worship him as well. So Herod, he pretends to worship, but he intends to murder, all because Jesus was a threat to his power. Now, like I said, every time you feel threatened, there's going to be a response. And look at Herod's response here. His response is to kill Jesus. He wants to cut Jesus out of his life. This is an unfathomable response. That in verse 16, he is furious when he finds out that the wise men are not going to report back to him, and he's filled with rage and kills all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and the surrounding neighborhoods who were under the age of two. Now, what can we learn from our character, Herod? Well, we learn from Herod's response that he was unwilling to surrender every area of his life, specifically with his power. This is a man who did not want anybody else to call the shots for how he was to live his life. He was unwilling to give up power and autonomy and control. And look, we, we know this to be true, but there are, there are Herod types of people all around us in the culture in which we live in. Now granted, people aren't going out and killing children, but we are surrounded by people in this community who will go at great lengths to cut Jesus out of their life. That there are people who, who do not want to be a, a Christ follower. They don't want to be a Christian because they don't want someone else to take the throne of their life. They don't want to give up power. They don't want someone else telling them how to live. They, they don't want to abide by this book. They don't want to give up their lifestyle or their plans for their life or their ambition or their finances. They're not going to allow some other person to be king over their lives. And so they also see Jesus as a threat. That's interesting because the people in our lives who are not Christians, who we interact with, they, they don't mind taking time off work to celebrate Jesus's birth. They're even okay having Jesus as somewhat of a resource for them, like almost like a spiritual consultant if they're going through some type of tragedy. But what they're unwilling to do is bow their knee to King Jesus and to surrender every area of their life. I just want you to be aware of that as you interact with people during this time of year and might be talking about Jesus with them or inviting them to church, that one of the chief idols in people's lives is power, that people love to have control over how they want to live their lives, that they don't want to submit to Jesus and what the word of God has to say. You need to almost anticipate that as you talk about Jesus with other people and emphasize the fact that to be a Christian means that you give up your sense of autonomy. You give up your power. You give up your control and you submit yourself to how Jesus wants you to live. 
And so when you're sharing the gospel with people, don't just emphasize a get out of jail or get out of hell, hell free card. Don't just emphasize heaven and salvation, but emphasize what it means to be a Christian is that you live a life of obedience to Christ. So Herod was unwilling to do that. So that's the first character. We see Herod felt threatened by Jesus to give up power and as a result wanted to cut Jesus out of his life. But number two here, another group of characters are the wise men. The wise men. We're introduced to them in verse one as well. The text says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, who are the wise men? Like, where do they come from? Like, this is a really random group of characters. There, there's so many myths about the wise men. So let me just give you some, uh, some information about them. You can even use this for tonight's Christmas trivia if you need to. So, these wise men are called wise men, not because they possessed some type of special kind of wisdom, but because they were students of the star. They were astrologers. But don't, don't think like kooky stargazers who were just kind of weird. But these wise men who are from the east, most likely Persia, were from the Persian priestly ruling class. They were very high up and very wealthy. Now, oftentimes they are depicted as as being kings, like kings from afar. And many people believe that because of the, the, the type of gifts that they give to Jesus. They were very expensive gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But there's no evidence to support that theory. In fact, if you were wealthy, you could have given the same type of gift. Another a common myth about the wise men is that there were only three of them. And yet there's no evidence to support that as well. They believe that because there were three different gifts. And yet, most believe that a school of traveling astronomers like this would have included over a dozen different wise men. Now, let's talk about the nativity scene that's in your living room at home. Most nativity scenes include wise men. And I hate to break it to you, but it's just not biblically accurate to have wise men in your nativity scene. So it's something else that we have to break to Ellie. Now, wise men, the reason why I say that is because if you look at the text, verse one says that this, this all occurred after Jesus was born. Some believe months after he was born. And then you look at verse 11 here, and you see that, that they came to Mary and Joseph and Jesus when they were in a house, okay? So they're no longer in the inn. Jesus is not in the manger. So this is not really the nativity scene that we see here. They're actually in a house. So the wise men were not actually there until months later. Now, I could go on and on about different trivia about the wise men, but what I found most interesting about the wise men is why do you have a group of Gentile astrologers here who care about this baby who's been born king of the Jews? Like, have you ever read that and thought to yourself, like, this is, this is weird. Like, they're not even Jewish, and they're traveling all the way over here they were star-stunned, and so they go, and they're looking for this baby-born king of the Jews. Like, like, how, like what's, what's matching up here, and what's not matching up here? Well, most likely what happened is that they were somewhat familiar with Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah and concerning the birthplace of the Messiah. 
Now, the reason why I believe that is because, remember, they were from the east, most likely Persia. And if you remember the Old Testament, you'll remember that many of the children of Israel had been sent to Persia during the time of exile. Now, specifically, when you look at the book of Daniel, you'll notice in chapters 1 and 2 that some of God's greatest men uh, were sent and kept among King Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. You can look at that, Daniel 1 and 2. Guys like uh, Daniel himself and, you know, the guy with the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, they were kept among King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, top men, including the wise men. So look, there's no doubt that they shared the writings of Moses, that they talked about the prophets with them, and included in there was the birthplace of the Messiah. That of course, in chapter two, verse six here, the chief priests are going to quote uh, from Micah chapter five. So definitely they're aware of that. But I think that they were also aware of Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. This might be uh, homework later on today for you. If you look at Numbers 23 and 24, you'll see this prophet Balaam who is prophesying blessing. And it says in chapter 24, verse 17, that a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And in the context here, this means that a king would rule the whole world and bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. And the star would be that sign that that has occurred. And you go through other uh, prophecies relating to Bethlehem and the star and the Messiah, but you have to think that, that they were familiar with some type of Old Testament knowledge that led them to this point after God caused this unusual heavenly activity. I'm sure they said to themselves, man, that's it. That's what we've been waiting for. That's what was written in here that our, our fathers talked to us about. Let's go and see it. So they go to Jerusalem and they have this really interesting conversation with Herod. They've known of Herod, Herod the tyrant, and Herod wants them to go see this baby, this uh, baby uh, born king of the Jews and tell him where he is located so he too can worship him as well. So the wise men go to Bethlehem. They're led by that star directly over the house where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are. And verse 10 tells us that they were overwhelmed with joy and they, verse 11, fell down and worshiped Jesus. Now, what was the threat that was upon their lives because of the birth of Jesus? When you look at the wise men, what was in danger or what did they have to give up in order to worship Jesus? Well, the threat that was posed to them was a threat against their comforts. It was against their comforts. This whole experience for the wise men was incredibly uncomfortable. This was inconvenient. This was stretching. This was costly for them to go through everything that they went through in order to worship Jesus. That for the wise men, they had to travel over 40 days just to get to Jerusalem and to worship Jesus in Bethlehem. 40 days, that costs a lot of money, and it was dangerous to travel that far. They brought expensive gifts to Jesus. So there's a financial cost that led to uh, an ability to be uncomfortable. They also risked their lives. Like, Herod was, was pretty crazy, and they risked not telling him where Jesus was born, and so that shows another level of, of being willing to give up their comfort in order to worship Jesus. I just want to point out that this is exactly what Jesus does in our lives when we follow him. Like when we follow Jesus, like he threatens 
the idol of comfort in our lives. Because following Jesus means doing the hard things, like resisting temptation, doing what's right when everybody else is doing what's wrong. That's not easy. Like, it's not easy to, to read this book and to study this book and to obey this book in a culture in which has become just a cesspool of immorality. Like, being a Christian is, is really hard. And so if you want to maintain the idol of comfort and still be a Christian, you're going to find that very, very difficult and basically impossible to do. Look, I know that some of you are going through a season of life right now where you're going through something that's revealing your idol of comfort. Look, I just, I just want to encourage you today to, to not take the easy way out. Whatever that situation might be for you, to, to, to understand that being a Christian means following Jesus and obeying the Bible even when it's difficult and especially when it's difficult. Because the birth of Jesus and the existence of Jesus in your lives poses as a threat to the idol of comfort that might be in your heart. And the wise men felt this. The wise men went through this. And yet, notice the response of the wise men here. Different than Herod, their response was worship. The response to this threat of their comfort was was worship. Verse 2, they wanted to worship Jesus. Why they're trying to find him. Verse 11, when they finally saw Jesus, they bowed down and worshiped him. But the wise men were not trying to use Jesus for their own agenda or use Jesus for their own purposes. They just wanted Jesus. Now, can you imagine if, if this story like, was, was any different? Like if the, if the wise men got so excited about seeing that star in the sky and like, man, like, let's go to Jerusalem and find out where the king of the Jews has been born. Like imagine if they, if they got so excited about that and they finally get to Jerusalem and they talk to Herod and they think to themselves, man, this guy is not right. This guy's a tyrant. I, I, I don't know if we should go see Jesus. Like I don't know if, if this is actually worth it. Like this is, this is becoming a little bit too uncomfortable for us. Like let's go back to, to Persia. Let's go back to the east here and, and, just, and just avoid uh, King Herod. Can you imagine if the story went that way and we knew the other side of the story? Like we'd read that and we'd think to ourselves, no, 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 you're, you're so close. Like this is, this is worth it. Like giving up the comfort of, of, of going head, you know, head on with Herod is worth it in the end because you get to worship Jesus and God's gonna protect you. God's gonna speak to you in that dream and for you to avoid Herod, like hang in there. And, and you just, you think about it that perspective of, of what they had to push through in order to worship Jesus. And you look at the people in our lives, perhaps people in this room, and you think to yourself that there are so many people who are kept from following Jesus because of this idol of comforts. So many people get so close to Jesus. And yet when Jesus threatens the idol of comfort in their lives, that's when they tap out. Like, even during this time of year, people get excited about Jesus. In fact, people might travel all the way to church and and come here to, to learn about Jesus. And yet, so many people this year will not take that next step and surrender to King Jesus and give up their comfort because they want to be king. Also, just want to encourage you as you're talking to people during this time of year, maybe, 
even in your own life, in your own heart, as you wrestle with this, uh, with this idol, that people are, are thinking about, man, what, what's most comfortable for my life? Like what's gonna cause the most ease? And as you're sharing the gospel and you're calling people to die to themselves and to believe in Jesus, like that, that's not gonna resonate with every person that you, that you talk to. Just wanna prepare you as you talk to, to other people. And yet for the wise men here, they, they were threatened by this idol of comfort and yet they still obeyed and worshiped Jesus. So we've seen Herod, we've seen now the wise men. Next group of characters I wanna highlight for us is Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph. Now, there's not a great deal of detail about Mary and Joseph in our passage. We're um, introduced to them, in chapter two at least, in verse 11, where the wise men come to uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And then verse 13 through 15, we have a little bit more about them. There we learn that an angel comes to Joseph in a dream to flee uh, to Egypt to avoid Herod killing Jesus. And they did so, they obeyed God and remained there until Herod's death. And this was to fulfill the prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, uh, verse one. Now that should ring a bell if you were here in the fall. If you remember going through Hosea, we looked at Hosea chapter 11, verse one. We looked at this prophecy. We looked at how Hosea was pointing forward to Jesus and so what Matthew is doing with this prophecy from chapter 11, verse one of Hosea, is he's showing, us, he's showing us the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. He's highlighting the fact that Israel had forfeited their privilege of being a son of God because of their disobedience. We'll go back into Hosea for you, but if you remember Hosea and the nation of Israel, like, like they, were, they were going after other gods, other nations, and because of their disobedience, they forfeited their position as being a son of God. But Jesus here, Matthew is highlighting this to show us that Jesus is the true and better Israel and fulfilled everything that Israel could not. And so we see Mary and Joseph who have to flee to Egypt again here. They have to uproot their lives and they obey God. Now, what was the threat in their lives? Well, the threat was their expectations, it was their expectations. I want you just to put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Joseph for a moment. I want you to go back to maybe early on in their relationship. I don't know what dating looked like back then, but let's say they were dating and kind of getting to know each other. They're falling in love. They get betrothed. And they have an idea or an expectation of what their life was going to be like. They had plans. They had dreams. They had aspirations of what a normal life was going to look like. And then Mary gets this encounter with that angel. <laughs> and she's told, hey, you're gonna be the mother of the son of God through a virgin birth. And in that moment, all of her expectations, all of her dreams were gone. But the birth of Jesus and the existence of Jesus for Mary and Joseph posed as a threat to the expectations that they had for any type of normal life that they had dreamed of. That their idea of just fitting in, of just looking like everybody else was now gone. And we looked a couple weeks ago at their betrothal and their marriage was seen as controversial, probably impacted Joseph's employment. I'm sure they had some friends and family members who thought they were crazy getting these 
dreams from, uh, from different angels. And now, here we are again. They're called to uproot their lives and to go and live in Egypt for some time. Now, that's the threat, but notice their response. This is different than Herod here. Their response was obedience, complete obedience to what God asked them to do. Look, they could have stayed in Bethlehem here. They could have stayed and thought to themselves, man, this is our time. Like, let's start our normal life here in Bethlehem. This is where Jesus is born. Like, we're just going to stay here and and fulfill some of those expectations that, that we had. And yet they didn't. They obeyed the Lord and they continued to, to die to their own sense of expectations. I just want to point out for us that, man, this is, this is a big temptation for us. Like th- this, is, this is a massive idol for us, is our own expectations, our own plan that we have for our own lives. And, and something that happens in life, and you've experienced this, I'm sure, many times, is when your expectations cl- collide with the reality of God's sovereignty in your life. Like you've got this plan for your life, you've got these dreams, these hopes, these expectations, and then the reality of life hits you and, and there's this gap that exists that all of those expectations you had just are unfulfilled. And so how do you, how do you fill that gap? What, what do you do when your expectations are unfulfilled and you're challenged with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Well, what we're called to do is to follow the example of Mary and Joseph here to obey the Lord, to demonstrate a trust and and faith upon God that God knows what's best for us. Look, I'm sure you've been there, that you've had expectations in in different areas of your life, expectations of, of relationships, maybe marriage or the timing of marriage or, or the type of marriage that you expected or wanted to have, maybe kids and the timing of kids or, or kids in general or the type of kids for your life, maybe your own career. You had a certain type of plan and vision for, for your career of success and notoriety in your life, and yet that hasn't been fulfilled. Or maybe even retirement that you're in a, a season of life and you were hoping and dreaming that retirement would be a certain kind of way and yet it's completely different than what you expected and what you hoped for. Like I just wanna encourage you in those moments when, when your expectations collide with God's sovereignty, man, your idol of expectations is being confronted and you have an opportunity to demonstrate obedience and trust in the Lord that even though It doesn't feel like God is good. God is still good, and he knows what's best for you in your life. That's a beautiful opportunity to say, man, like, this is different than what I expected. This is painful. Like, this is nothing what I wanted, but I believe in the sovereignty of God as demonstrated in Matthew chapter two, and I'm going to trust that this is what's best for my life. Look, it really comes down in our lives, when we're faced with those decisions, is, is Jesus just an outside consultant for you, telling you or giving you advice for how you are to run your life, or is he your king? Is he your king where he calls the shots, where you follow the life, that, the life that he has planned for you? As we look at these different idols, we looked at power, we've looked at um, comfort, we've looked here at expectations. Look, idols get difficult because We've got this weird relationship with, with the idols in our life. 
Like for some of the idols, like we, we enjoy some of the benefits that they give us. Like some of the, the benefits of power and comfort and exp- like we like those things. And look, we know that we're supposed to put to death sin, but it's hard to when, when we see the benefits that those idols give us. And yet the birth of Jesus and this time of year, we're reminded of the purpose of Jesus coming down in the form of a baby. That Jesus came in order to remove sin by giving up his own life in our place. That he died to take away the power of our idols. Idols of of power and and control and comfort and approval and, and expectations. He came here in order to threaten the sin that's in our lives and to put it to death. Look, I know that we don't talk about sin a lot during Christmas, but we're gonna miss the purpose of Jesus coming unless we talk about sin here, unless we talk about the role of, of even confessing and repenting during this time of year. Look, it's really easy just to treat this time of year of, of wanting to feel good on the inside, of wanting to, to do kind of our family traditions and celebrate cute baby little Jesus. And yet, look, we're gonna miss that purpose unless we understand that he came because of our sin. He came to do away with it. In fact, we just sang that in uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem, the, the fourth stanza gets at the purpose of Jesus' coming. It says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels and Great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. That Jesus came to cast out your sin so that he can enter in. We'll go back to that John Piper quote here that Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight, that it will not have its intended effect until we feel desperately the need for a Savior. And the way that we feel that need is when we experience the threats that Jesus has upon every idol and sin that's in our lives. So look, we've, we've looked at three different characters so far. We've looked at the wise men, we've looked at Herod, we've looked at Mary and Joseph, but I wanna close by looking at one more character. And the fourth character here is you. The fourth character that I wanna highlight here that's not explicitly in the text But Matthew writes this phenomenal narrative in such a way that that it kind of forces us to to put ourselves in the shoes of the characters of this story. That you and I are confronted with the question of what will your response be to King Jesus being born? Look, this is what Jesus does. Jesus confronts our idols, he identifies our idols, and he wants to replace our idols with himself. Look, in fact, if we looked at it this way, like if you thought for a moment about the chief idol that's in your life, whatever it is, and if we had that predominant idol come up here on stage and I interviewed that idol in front of everybody and I said, look, what is the biggest threat to your existence? Do you know what every idol would say? Every single idol would say it's King Jesus. King Jesus King Jesus is the threat to every sin that's in our lives. And yet the question is, how will you respond to that threat today? What will your reaction be? Will it be obedience? Will it be worship? 
Or will it be like Herod who wants to cut Jesus out of their life? I found it very interesting, like looking at this text and and looking at Mary and Joseph and the wise men and and even Herod. I thought to myself, man, if, if I asked them, who is Jesus to you? I guarantee they all would say the same thing. They all would say, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the promised Messiah. Like even Herod would have said that because I mean, why would he go to such lengths of trying to kill Jesus by killing every, every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem? See, each of them had the right understanding of who Jesus was and yet Herod did not have the right understanding that led him into obedience and into worship. And so look, this morning, it's a really important question to ask yourself, who is Jesus but it's an even more important question to ask yourself, who is Jesus to you? Like, is Jesus just some type of outside consultant in your life? Or is Jesus the king of kings who is calling the shots in your life? Look, our our biggest problem is not a behavior problem. Our biggest problem in in life is not trying to remove what is external, what, what our idols are producing. If that were the case, we could probably reform ourselves pretty well. But your biggest problem and my biggest problem has to do with the heart, that our heart is what is producing these idols and producing the sin that's in our lives. And the bad news is, and maybe the good news at the same time, is that we can't fix our own hearts. Like you and I, we, we need someone beyond ourselves in order to save us from a sinful heart that's producing all kinds of idolatries. Like you and I, we, we need to be rescued. Like we need a savior, someone who came, the form of a baby, who grew up, lived a sinless life, lived a perfect life, got up on a cross, died in the place of us sinners, disarmed the powers and rulers and authorities, made a mockery of them, and then resurrected three days later, and he holds the keys of victory. Look, that's our rescuer. That's our savior. Look, that's the point of Christmas, that Jesus came to cast out our sin so that he can enter in. Are you here today, and maybe you're not a believer? Maybe you're kind of stumbling in here wondering, man, what What's Christianity all about? Maybe you've been here multiple times and yet you maybe resonate with the character of Herod where you've got this idol of of power or an idol of comfort or expectations and maybe you're here and you've never bent your knee to King Jesus. I, I just wanna beg you today not to leave this place without putting your faith upon Jesus and turning from your sin. Don't leave here without crying out to Jesus to be saved. And look, there's no magic formula to to go with that. There aren't magic words. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so we're gonna close today with with another song. We're gonna have a a time for for you just to respond. It's a perfect time just to cry out to the Lord to be saved. If you want someone to talk to about that, I'd be down here in the front. would love to talk to you more. Like maybe you're here and this is a familiar story and, and you are a Christ follower and yet you would say in your own life, man, I've got, I've got these idols. Like I'm, I'm kind of limping into Christmas here and man, I'm staring comfort, power, expectations, approval in the face and I need to deal with this before next week. I just want to encourage you just to use this time as we sing to respond to the Lord, to confess your sin because baby Jesus came here
to deal with that. So let's respond to the Lord. Let's pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you so much for a reminder today in your word that you threaten every sin that's in our life. God, we thank you that we can't hide our sin. We can't treat our sin as pets. But Lord, you call us and you call us to come and die. And that means every idol in our lives. And so God, would you give us eyes to see what sin we need to confess? God, help us to live lives that are open-handedly. God, that live lives that are all in for you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.